Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode is going to take a different approach, leaning toward how individuals can get involved with their own paddling environments through citizen science. And today I'm talking with Scott Baxter and Matt Kahabka about their circumnavigation of Utah's Great Salt Lake and why this trip is important. So enjoy today's episode with Scott and Matt. Hi, Scott. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining the Paddling the Blue podcast today. John, thanks for having us on. We're excited about the program. Happy to be here. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about your personal background um, as a paddler. So, I, I've paddled all my life. I, I really enjoy the water and living in a desert. I've spent most of my life in a desert and currently live near the Great Salt Lake, and that's became one of my favorite places to paddle. And you said you've been, how long have you been paddling in that area? Uh, I've been paddling on the Great Salt Lake for about 30 years now. And, uh, Matt, you've got a, a little different background. Tell us about yourself as a paddler. Yeah, so my paddling experience started pretty much with this trip that we're about to talk about. I had done a few trips on the wa- overnight trips on the water, more canoeing and whatnot. Um, but this was my first real uh, multi-day kayaking trip. So yeah, definitely different. Well, good. Welcome to the world of multi-day kayaking. It certainly is a, a fun experience. So um, we're here to talk today about the Great Salt Lake and the trip that you did circumnavigating the Great Salt Lake. And we've got listeners all over the world. So if we could begin by telling us a little bit about the Great Salt Lake. And Scott, I'm going to turn to you on this one. Okay, so the Great Salt Lake is in Utah, in the United States. It's in what's called the Great Basin of the United States, which is a large basin where water flows in but does not flow out to the ocean. So lakes like the Great Salt Lake are terminal lakes, which are fed with inlets but have no outlets. So the water in them gets quite salty, collecting all the minerals that have dissolved in the streams that feed the lake. And it's, um, it's a large lake. It's about 75 miles long and about 35 miles wide. Quite a shallow lake. And it's surrounded by, by desert and um, very unique lake in the western United States. And am I to understand that you, you can't really camp along the shores? It's not really a, a recreational space as much. It really isn't a recreational space. There is a state park on one of the islands, Antelope Island, that has campgrounds. And there's also a state park at a marina on the south end that allows camping. But the, the rest of the lake is sovereign land of Utah that's managed by the state forestry department. And camping is one thing they do, do not permit. We um, went through quite an involved permitting, commercial permit permitting process to be able to go out there and spend multiple days and they approved it because the lake is currently hitting an all-time low as far as historic lows go and the intent of the trip was to go out and to experience that in a very personal way and to record that both through photographs and through through our writings and they were very supportive of that, so we were able to get a permit and spend a week out on the lake. So what was the the, the claim that you made toward the Park Service to be able to, to get that permit? I approached them, and I don't think I'm the first that's approached them. It was actually state forestry, a little bit different than state park service. but um, And I've worked for years with many of the major stakeholders on the lake, the conservation groups, the various agencies in the state that manage the the waterfowl, the wetlands, the brine shrimp industry and whatnot, and and worked with quite a few of the industries on the lake. So 
they all know me well. And I just said for years now, I've told myself I'm going to circumnavigate the lake when it hits a record low. And that's something that's never been done. This was the first time the lake has been circumnavigated by kayaks. How did you determine that claim? There's just no other record of anybody doing that. And it's not really surprising because you really don't see a lot of kayakers on the lake. Up until a few years ago, you saw a lot of sailboats on the lake. And those sailboats are all in, in dry dock right now because the lake's too low for a sailboat to be able to get out on it. But not that many kayakers. And there, there's maybe a dozen of us that have kayaked extensively on the lake. And we all pretty well know each other. There was one lady that did a end-for-end run down the east side, which is the side that the Wasatch Front, the population, is on. Nobody's really combined that with the west side, which is much more remote and circumnavigated the lake. So what is it that's, that's special about this lake? Why did you do this trip? It really is a special place from a lot of the work I've done on it. One of the more important things is it's a place of hemispheric importance for birds. About 10 million birds fly through the Great Salt Lake and they, they forage on the Great Salt Lake during their migration. It's a critical stopover for them. Some birds, such as the eared grebe, which number about 450,000 in their total world population, almost that entire population comes to the lake each year. They'll feed on the brine shrimp and, and get double their size and weight. They're out there now grazing. We saw a lot of them. In between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas time period, they'll leave in large flocks, large enough that it's picked up on Doppler rad radar, and they'll they'll fly nonstop to their destinations. They're not a they're not as long a migration bird as many, but they fly from the Great Salt Lake down into Southern California, Northern Mexico areas where they'll spend the winter. In terms of, uh, of wildlife, other than birds, what, what would you expect to see there? It, it is a desert environment. In a lot of ways, there's not a lot of wildlife. Antelope Island, which is a state park on the lake, is actually a haven for wildlife. They have bighorn sheep. They have antelope, the namesake, or pronghorn antelope, the namesake of the island. They've got really large mule deer out there, and, and they've got bison. In addition to that, they have coyote, they have fox, they have bobcat, a handful of reptiles, and, and a lot of spiders. <laughs> the place <laughs> is famous for the large spiders that grow out there. But um, but outside of that, you will see mule deer occasionally. Um, we visited Fremont Island on a quick paddle, introduction paddle, just a couple days before our trip. And um, saw mule deer when we were out there, but your typical desert animals live around the lake. And I understand that the the salinity is pretty high, so there's not much in terms of life in the lake. Is that right? Yeah, the lake's pretty limited in some respect. The organisms that live there are called extremophiles because it's an extreme environment. Also, quite often you'll hear them referred to as halophytes or halophiles, which are plants and organisms that have adapted to living in a very saline environment. So, so although the the numbers of species are small. There's no fish in the lake. Brine shrimp and brine fly are the, the major major food source for the birds on the lake, and, and they're quite abundant. So what is there is there in abundance, but there's not a, a wide variety. Um, the north and south end of the lake are actually divided by a railroad causeway that was put in in the late 50s, and it's an earth-filled causeway, and it essentially dammed off the north end of the lake, which has no inlets. So on the north end of the lake, it's actually 27% salinity. It's full saturation of salinity up there. 
the water's red. The only algae that grows in that type of salinity has a red cast to it. So the water's red and there's the life forms there are very few. But in the south end, it has abundant life, although there's not a lot of species that's abundant. Scott, I think you're forgetting one of the most notable uh, wildlife experiences that most people might encounter, and that's the mosquitoes. Uh, I think it's sometimes got quite a reputation. If you catch it at the wrong time or the wrong season, you can be overwhelmed. I know I've ridden my bike out onto the causeway that connects Antelope Island to the mainland, and my arms were and my face was covered black from the clouds of black flies and mosquitoes that you ride through. So they can be quite ferocious at times. Fortunately, we avoided most of that. So what is it about that area that, that attracts the mosquitoes? Is it, is it the salinity? Is there something else about that lake that, that does that? So in particular, going out to Antelope Island, um, Antelope Island is also a causeway road going out to the island that separates Farmington Bay from the rest of the lake. And Farmington Bay has some of the tributaries that enter into the lake, um, enter in through Farmington Bay. So when they built that causeway, it made that a, a fresher water portion of the lake. And as the lakes receded, that bay is pretty well dried up. So you really just have a tributary of the fresher water coming through it. And, and it, it harbors a lot of mosquitoes. You know, there's a lot of things out there that bite. There, there are gnats out there also that will lay eggs in, in moist sand. So shortly after the spring range, you'll get incredible numbers number of gnats that, that come out and bite too. And, and black flies, as Matt mentioned. So it, it can be a... It can be pretty, pretty inhospitable onshore as well as in the water out there. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fantastic place to paddle. <laughs> yeah, I, you, you know, it's it, it's a unique place. I, I think there's a reason why a lot of people don't paddle out there. I, I've always said getting to know the Great Salt Lake is like getting to know a porcupine. You do it, you do it cautiously. <laughs> so, Matt, I'm going to turn to you for a minute here. Um, tell us a little bit about the paddle itself. Sure. So I think Scott had been planning this trip for about four years, and I think I got roped into it about four days before it began. Um, so I had a uh, like a long distance hiking plan or trip that got canceled a couple days beforehand. And when Scott found that out, he said, "Oh, I've got just the thing to replace it for you." So I kind of naively got his packing list and got all the items on it, whether you know borrowing from him mostly. And, you know, we got down to, or we left around 4.30 in the morning to get down to the marina at the very south end where we were planning on launching. Assembled all the gear, and as I was coming from a backpacking mindset, I was really pleased to see how much gear that you can stuff inside of a kayak. That was kind of a new <laughs> new experience for me, that I could have some fresh foods and, you know, uh, vegetables out there with me that weren't all dehydrated. So that was quite a treat. So I was pretty excited going into it. Good. Didn't have to cut the handle off your toothbrush? I kept a full toothbrush. It was quite luxurious. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it was funny because Scott and I had done a kind of a test run about a week prior to setting off on this trip where we launched from Antelope Island and paddled up to Fremont Island. And on that trip, we had to wade through knee-deep, like, shoe-sucking mud to get out to launch because the water level was low. And there was some spray uh, from the wind. And, you know, I was just wearing a long sleeve shirt that just got absolutely crusted with salt by the time I got home. So I was really expecting to be absolutely foul this whole time, this whole trip, right? So I had kind of prepared multiple packets of baby wipes. And we had, because there's no fresh water on the route, we had to, 
either carry or cache all of the water that we were going to be using during the trip. Um, so I had to try and allocate some extra to clean off with and, and everything. So uh, fortunately, we donned our uh, spray jackets and spray skirts and were able to keep most of the salt off of us while paddling. Maybe a little bit different experience from the trial run. And I have to say that things went a little bit smoother than I envisioned after that one day outing, thankfully. <laughs> so from there, uh, so you paddled from the south end and how long did it take you for the trip? So the entire trip was six days. And, and we were putting in fairly full days, kind of starting at sunrise, cooking the breakfast, and then trying to get on the water right as the sun was rising. We were really uncertain with a lot of the weather conditions. There's not a lot of information or uh, reports available for the North Arm. So we were trying to start getting the, those unknowns out of the way as early as possible while we had the most accurate weather forecasts that we had uh, that we could uh, get for them. So we went clockwise around the lake, putting in close to about 30 miles each day, or at least that was the initial plan. As we set out, we had some headwinds um, and some rougher waters that slowed us down. So we fell sh shy of our goal for the first two days, paddling up past Stansbury Island uh, for the first one, and then doing what was about a 14-mile crossing uh, to get to the railroad causeway that Scott mentioned that bisects the lake. And we ended up having to camp near the, or essentially on an old portion of the, the railroad causeway. And for me, that 14 mile crossing was one heck of an experience. I had never sat in a kayak seat, kayak seat so long for uninterrupted, no breaks. And that was something that I had to kind of reconcile was like, you can't stand up and take a break whenever you want. You kind of need to get where you're going. And that was, that was a unique learning moment for me. <laughs> yeah. In terms of uh, research, now, my understanding is there's part of this trip was recreation, uh, but a larger part of this trip was research. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about the research and what you were looking to learn with this. So, really, what we were doing out there, there, there are a lot of scientists that, that work on the lake. I thought I knew all of them, but after this trip, several more contacted me about what we saw and what we didn't see. But um, what they were really interested in is um, somebody that can go out in a kayak and get to places that they can't get in larger boats and really get a firsthand experience of what's happening as this life structure of the lake comes to the surface. So the, the base for the lake, are, it's, a, it's a living rock, essentially. It's a combination of cyanobacteria and algaes and and calcium carbonate that comes out of the water that creates a, a living rock structure that's called a microbialite and, and that is the that's the base for the food chain for the brine fly and a significant food source for the brine shrimp especially after they've grazed off the free-floating algae the brine shrimp have a little bit different mouth parts on them so they they prefer what's floating in the water but but it's, it, it is the base for the food chain out there. And these structures have been coming to the surface and above the surface. And when that happens, they die. Unfortunately, so the last time the lake was close to this low was in the early 60s. There wasn't a lot of research done at that time at how fast these microbialites come back. Some scientists think it will take several years for them to come back and be repopulated and start growing again. Some think just a matter of months. One of the research groups involved in the lake, the Great Salt Lake Institute, which is sponsored by Westminster College, have taken several samples of these and put in aquariums in different ways to watch them and see how quickly they, they rebound. 
we had the opposite problem in the 80s. The lake actually was overflowing, and it flooded out a lot of the wetlands, including the very famous Bear River National Bird Refuge. And the same concern was there, that that salinity killed the refuge. And what they found is it came back actually surprisingly fast. Hopefully we'll be that lucky with the microbialites, but there's a lot of a lot of scientists that are, are wondering about that. So so right now, about 15% of those microbialites have been exposed to the surface. So it can take some damage, but that same structure, for example, when they put the causeway across for the railroad, that same structure was killed in the entire north end. So we continue to re- reduce that food source for the migratory birds. And we don't know how they're going to respond to for example, having more sunlight than they did before as the lake gets lower or being more subjected to, to wave action than they've been before or being exposed to higher salinity than they have been before. So so there's a lot of concern about that. And, and there's a lot of interest in just documenting what it's like now. So we have a benchmark for what it's like right now and watching it carefully going forward. Okay, so the microbialites are important as a food source for the uh, migrating birds. Is that what I heard? That's the foundation of the entire food source in the lake. So if we were to lose those, um, the lake would probably collapse. It would become very different than it is today. And in terms of low to high, so you mentioned it's at its lowest point now, um, and then the highest point was in the 80s. What kind of range are we talking about? You're talking about a 20-foot range, and a lake that right now is only less than 30 feet deep at the deepest spot. So <laughs> it is a significant range on a, on a shallow basin lake like the Great Salt Lake. So 30 feet deep at its, at its deepest point, point and, and you've lost 20 of those feet or it's 30 feet now? Yeah. So, so yeah, in fact, I think, Matt, you looked that up. I think 24 feet is what they're saying is the deepest point now. Does that sound right? That's what I had read before starting on yeah. the trip was 24 feet currently. Yeah. But from the 80s to now, you've lost 20 feet of depth. Yeah. That is, that is incredible. If we look back into history, how is that a, a, a cycle? I mean, does it, do we see that ebb and flow on a regular basis or, or what? So, so there is an ebb and flow on the lake. It, it will evaporate off each year, and the evaporation will take two in a real hot summer, maybe close to three feet of water out of the lake. And, and then the runoff from the snow melt obviously offsets that in most years. In the mid-80s, we did have a flood cycle. That was definitely higher than it had been for, for a long time. In fact, they, they went to the extent of putting pumps out on the West Desert to be able to pump water out of the lake onto the West Desert where it could evaporate off because the railroad, the interstates, the international airport were all, all threatened by this lake as it got higher. Very different problem than what we have today, but in general, the lake's been receding. The lake was part of a much larger lake in the Little Ice Age, so 15,000 years ago, Lake Bonneville covered much of Utah and portions of, of Nevada, and even a little bit beyond that. So, so the lake has receded dramatically since that then, but that's comparing to a little Ice Age time period. It has actually been lower than it is right now, so a, a couple times at least in the last 15,000 years also. But, but in recorded history, um, we're definitely setting a precedent with this. So what information specifically did you, did you capture while you were out there? 
So really what they wanted was just firsthand experience going through it. There are scientists asking us to do a redo at this point to capture more stuff. We've got one scientist that several years ago, his dissertation for his PhD was on the structures and the spacing of these stromatolites. So he used various sources of echo sonar to map the bottom of the lake and determine where those those are at. He's actually taking the track that we made from our kayak trip now, overlaying his mapping and then looking at the pictures, um, kind of comparing a then and now when those structures were several feet under the water when he was doing his research. So so yeah, we, we, we weren't being scientists as much as just observing and bringing back our observations and, and whatnot. What would you say to people who might just say, well, that's that's the normal ebb and flow. It's going to go up, it's going to go down over time, and we just wait for the next cycle. Yeah, John, that's what a lot of people say right now. You know, it's like global warming. Global warming isn't real to a lot of people. And, and quite frankly, I don't think global warming is real in a sense. Global warming is an outcome. It's, it's not what initiates the change. It's the outcome of you know, decisions we make in our life that affect the planet we live on. There's been really solid research done on the lake. A professor from Utah State University, Wayne Wardsbaugh, has gone back and, and looked at lake levels and what the contributors are to the lake level now versus what it would have been without human impact. And, and there, there's no question the vast majority of the impact of the receding lake has been because we've diverted water for, for agriculture, for cities, for green lawns, for, for industry. And second to that is the Western states have been in a significant drought and that's contributed. And just recently, overall global warming probably has contributed also, but the charts are very overwhelming on, on how much water's been taken out and how much that's impacted the lake. So there, there's little question on that point. And it's a concern going forward, too. You know, we say, boy, if we have a wet winter, we might get more water in the lake. But unfortunately, the reservoirs that feed all the cities that are on these tributaries that go into the lake, they're they're all lower than they've ever been. So it's going to take a tremendous winter just to bring those up to a level that, that the regulators are comfortable with. So we're going to need several long winters in a row to, to come out of this. I was just going to add to that briefly that um, in addition to the biology that is affected from the receding water levels, as the lake drops, as we've mentioned, it's so shallow that it exposes a lot of new shoreline. You know, there's major metropolitan area of the Salt Lake City is just downwind from this lake with most of the prevailing winds. So as dust gets kicked up, as, as that starts to affect some of the population centers, you know, it's not just birds that are going to be affected by this. You know, while I think that's still a very important cause, you know, it's going to it could potentially affect your day to day life um, as as these even if it is cyclical, it might not be a pleasant cycle and we might be able to do something to mitigate that in the short term. So out of curiosity, how fast did the water recede? So the water's down about two and a half feet from this time last year and still receding, actually. It's dropping fast, and it is a concern, and I don't think we're going to get... There's some real positive things. So Rio Tinto owns Kennecott Mines in this area, one of the larger copper mines in in the country, and and friends of Great Salt Lake and, and Audubon and a few other areas have been working with them and some other stakeholders, and they've announced that they are going to allow certain number of shares of water that they have 
to flow to the Great Salt Lake, which they've never allowed before. So, you know, those things will make a little bit of difference. But really, next year is going to, to be bad. I just can't imagine we'll get enough water to fill the reservoirs and still put a dent in the lake. If we have two good winters in, the low, in a row, then we can start to gain some lake elevation back, hopefully. But it's, and we've been in a storm system for a week now, so it is a little bit encouraging, but um, it, it's going to get pretty bleak on that lake, I think. The stromatolites and the, you know, microbialites that we talked about, right now, their prime zone is about one foot underwater currently. Normally, that would be four feet underwater. So if, if we drop two, three more feet, we'll drop well past their prime zone. And then we're really going to start to lose a lot of food source per, per foot of drop at that point. So with that in mind, um, how do we use this information going forward? Yeah, so I think there is a lot of work being done by like the Friends of Great Salt Lake who are trying to understand where some of the water is going that are going into the tributaries. Uh, I know that they've successfully worked on postponing some diversion projects that are meant to take even more water from the tributary rivers. But I think it, it's going to come from really analyzing how we use water and seeing value in the, in the lake and understanding that maybe the the answer is ensuring that a certain amount of water goes towards that lake. So I think it's going to be uh, some contribution on an individual basis, but I think also some legislation is going to have to be involved on making sure that that happens. You know, it's interesting. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, can we get the public support to make a difference on this lake? I, I probably would have said no. I'm seeing a difference over the last four or five years. I'm seeing a lot of people engaging. One real positive thing about this kayaking trip is that it's given all these groups a different channel to reach different audiences with. You know, the circumnavigation of the Great Salt Lake and a kayak is a great story to capture people's attention and start educating everyone. And, and that's a big part of what we're doing here. All of our all of the pictures we've taken and, and everything we're writing is being shared with all these different stakeholders on the lake. And the lake is significant economically. It contributes about $1.3 billion to the Utah economy each year. They harvest minerals out, out of the lake. 40% um, of the world's brine shrimp eggs are harvested out of the lake. Those are used to feed to prawn, actually, for the restaurant industry. 14% of the world's magnesium comes from the lake. In fact, only magnesium in North and South America comes from the lake. It's big to the ski industry. Five to 10% of the snow the ski mountains get come from lake effect snow from the lake. They estimate it extends the ski season by as much as six weeks each year. So there, there are a lot of, lot of reasons besides birds to be concerned about the lake. And I think the biggest are the ones that Matt mentioned, just the, the health impacts when, when this dust starts being picked up in dust storms and blown into the metropolitan area on the Wasatch Front, the health impacts could be severe. And, you know, I saw some of the pictures uh, from the trip, and you had mentioned the salinity and just you know, getting the salt all over you. Tell me a little bit about the, the camping experience that you had on the trip. The camping experience is unique, especially in the north ends. So as the lake has receded in the north end, it, it's left basically a large shoreline of of salt that can go two or 300 yards from the lake. And as it snows and rains, that salt gets dissolved and moved closer to the lake. But this time of year, after a hot summer, we were in salt the entire time. So 
and these microbialites, the mounds that we're talking about, they're they're covered in salt crystals up there. So, so the camping experience is very unique. You you pull into what looks like uh, an Arctic area. <laughs> Everything's white and crystally. And you get out and you you sit in the salt, you lay in the salt, you set up your tent in the salt, you cook in the salt, and the salt gets everywhere. Your rudder systems start getting fouled because of the salt. Buckles and zippers quit working because of the salt. Velcro and knots become difficult. So there's no way to go up there without just embracing the fact that you're going to be a potato chip for a while. You're going to be <laughs> salty. And that, that's, just, just, that's just the reality of of the camping but um but it actually it went very smoothly for us you know one of the from a kayaking experience one of the things that i've never experienced because i've never spent multiple days kayaking up in the north arm of the lake is that after the second day up there we were just paddling as hard as we could and maybe making 2.3 2.5 miles per hour and we felt like we were putting a lot more effort into it than that and it was the next day when we got out for a break that matt started to inspect underneath our boats and salt crystals had grown on the bottom of our boats. We were, we not only had a lot of drag because of an irregular surface, but we were carrying an awful lot of weight of salt. We got out a cord and each grabbed an end and, and went on each side. Each of us took a different side of the boat and we just kind of sawed it back and forth as we worked down along the, the hull of the boats and that took the salt off and we started paddling again, putting in half the effort and we we're going four and a half miles an hour. So. That was a lesson learned for us after 70 miles up there in the north end. <laughs> we had about 10 miles left to go, and we we finally found out, you know, there's, there's a way we can manage the, this burden. But, yeah, it was a very different experience. So, Matt, from your perspective, uh, as a both a newcomer to paddling, how was the experience for you? It was quite the experience. So I've done a lot of long-distance cycling, hiking, everything like that. And this was a completely unique uh, outing everything from starting the day as the sun is rising over the water and we would get these mirror-like surfaces you know flocks of gulls flying overhead and the color on the water i think scott had mentioned that the water in the north arm has a reddish hue to it so when the sunlight hits that it is just a magical experience i remember one morning we were out paddling before the sun was up clear night the stars were out and you could see them reflecting perfectly in this mirror of the lake. And that was just an incredible moment. So from a kayaking perspective, there were definitely some rewards that really surprised me. I was kind of expecting this trip to be this grueling suffer fest that I was just kind of helping Scott out with. And it ended up just being this fascinating, you know, magical experience for me. Don't worry, like there, there certainly were some grueling moments that, you know, as we were caked in salt and you know trying to avoid blisters and you know trying to fidget around in your seat to position a little bit more comfortably one of the things that was challenging was the water depth was so shallow that we ended up having to be in some instances you know a couple miles from shore so that we could actually be within you know two three feet of water uh, because if we were any closer it was just you know so shallow and very difficult to paddle if we really wanted to get out and have a real lunch break on on something dry uh, there was quite the penalty to paddle in and take a break. So we ended up minimizing breaks. Or when we did stop, sometimes we would just pull out and stand in eight inches of water and still be a mile from shore um, and eat our lunch like that. Um, so that was pretty unique and, and interesting, I thought. 
So did you have to uh, basically uh, walk in every night? So what we did was uh, we pl had planned to try and um, pull in and where where the water was the deepest. So we were setting ourselves up. We knew that there were a few waypoints along the way where we could maybe find a slightly deeper bench. But as far as yeah, camping goes at night, sometimes we did have to pull the boats kind of through this field of exposed uh, microbialites. Uh, that had water in between them, but we were dragging our boat, kind of towing it along in order to find a flat level dry spot to camp. Yeah. So it sounds like a pretty fragile environment. I mean, it's you mentioned kind of a moonscape sort of thing. I think Scott mentioned that. Um, so I, I'll, I'll ask Matt this one. How did you guys kind of practice leave no trace camping ethics in that environment where it just seems so fragile? As far as like the north end goes, where I think that was the most dramatic moonscape, um, there's very little life up there to to worry about um, in terms of you know, disrupting a an existing um, food chain or anything like that. So, but we did, you know, always try and uh, you know, obviously like bring all of our trash with us and stuff as as uh, you do. I mean, the the salt being so solid, you didn't really have to worry too much about breaking through or or anything like that. So honestly, we weren't even leaving footprints in the, the rock hard salt structures that were out there. And I'm gonna go ahead and shift gears here for just a moment. So I, uh, so Scott, I understand that you made the boats that you paddled on the trip, is that right? Yeah, I, I get a little fanatical about kayaking, I guess. So so yeah, these boats are, are cedar strip boats. Um, actually not cedar, there's some cedar in them, but I, I use a variety of woods and and they were designed very much for the Great Salt Lake. They were designed for the really steep, close together waves that you get in the windstorms out there. And they, they performed very well. In fact, Matt being a very much a novice in, in big waves, um, I'll let him talk about it, but he did very well. But um, they're also designed, the artwork in the stripping is designed to mimic the American Avocet, as is a lot of the curves in the boat. So the American, American Avocet's a beautiful bird, and it's a significant bird on the Great Salt Lake. It it migrates through, and a large number of them actually nest in the area. So, so it's a, a bird of significance here, and and one of the boats is actually the color of a an American Avocet in winter plumage, and one is uh, the colors of a American Avocet in breeding plumage. So, very much boats that were designed all around for the lake. So, were these boats of your own design, or yeah, I, I design my own boats and build them. It's just been a hobby for years now that I really enjoy. And are you doing it on a, on a hobby basis or professionally? No, I you know I, I learned a long time ago that you can really ruin a good hobby by trying to make money out of it. So I, I've I've tried to. There are people that have used my designs and and built them. In fact, for a long time, I I worked in international business and a lot of people would build them in various countries and. I'd put my prototypes out and let people build them, and I'd stop by and paddle them and decide what I wanted to change for the final boat. That worked quite well, but no, I, I've really enjoyed it. It's a fun group to be part of. It's a fun technology to learn, and it's a fun artistic endeavor also. So, uh, Matt, I'm going to skip back to you for a second. Um, Scott had just mentioned uh, waves, and so tell us a little bit about the conditions and what you might have experienced along the way. Yeah, so I think we had a pretty good variety of conditions as we went. The first two days, we were paddling into some headwinds. 
the waves felt huge to me, but I don't have a whole lot of experience in, in judging those. I, you know, I must have said, oh, those felt like five foot waves. And I think Scott said, oh, I think they were like two and a half, something like that. <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, as you mentioned, the boats handled well. I don't have a whole lot to compare it to, but I can't imagine anything better. So I was, you know, able to stay pretty comfortable uh, despite, you know, what seemed like massive waves to me. Yeah, every now and then you'd get some spray over the deck or, uh, you know, catch one wrong and kind of realize that you didn't put your spray skirt on quite as tight as you thought you did. And then, you know, that con- that settled down. Um, so after two days of that, we actually had pretty nice conditions that were fairly flat uh, water for good portions of it, which allowed us to kind of get back on schedule and make up some time. And then I think uh, we had some absolutely glassy evenings where it was the the only disturbance on the water was our wake um, which was pretty incredible i remember one time as we were paddling it was on the last day we were kind of looking out into the distance and i thought for sure that there was some rough water some wind out there and i pointed out to scott and I, oh look at the look at the kind of the chop out there uh, we were kind of sheltered from an island so i thought out, out further there was a little bit more waves and he, he informed me that nope this is uh you know perfectly placid water. Uh, that was a couple million grebe that were migrating through that just looked like, you know, the surface had been disturbed. So as we got closer, I got to see that. And uh, it was it was really fascinating just to see miles and miles of these migrating birds. Um, and as you get close to them, they would dive, dive away and stuff. So that, you know, they, it was, it was, it was very interesting to see uh, kind of up close and, and the larger scale of as far as the eye can see flock of sing, a single flock of birds. Definitely sounds like a fantastic experience. So Scott, uh, any any final words that you might be able to give to, in terms of uh, recommendations of how, how people might use the information that you've you've come up with? I think the best way to use the information is to apply it in your own life. We we can recognize this is a somewhat of a small experiment that, that that's somewhat controlled. We we know where the water's gone to that should have gone to the lake. And we can see the impacts of the lakes experiencing. When, when we talk about global warming and things like that, it, it becomes pretty foggy and hard to understand your role in it. But I guess what, what I'd hope a lot of people would take out of this is we can treat the earth better. And, and we can do that by just considering that in all of our activities during the day. I, I think we're creating a fairly hostile world right now, environmentally and socially. And it's fully within our control to, to turn that around and, and we can turn that around and and you know going out and and seeing this stuff firsthand and seeing the impact of the lake i analytically knew what i was going to see but i wasn't prepared emotionally to to see what i saw and and if we could start living our life where we're seeing the impacts of the decisions we make i think we could turn things around i really think we could the lake's just a magical place. You know, as hard as it was, it, it had its magical moments quite often. In fact, Matt mentioned several times how each time we were totally defeated, a magical moment would happen out there. And I think we've got magical moments left in, on this earth, and I think we can make them happen. So Matt and Scott, I really appreciate your time, and this has been a wonderful learning about your trip to the Great Salt Lake and the uh, experience you had and the learnings that you've come up with. How can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions? You know, as far as questions on the lake, I think there's established groups that they could reach out to that would be 
Excellent. The Great Salt Lake Institute from Westminster College, they have Facebook pages, multiple pages on different multimedia and, and public sites. They have a web page. Um, the National Audubon Society has put a tremendous amount of effort into saline lakes, and they have a saline lakes program. The Great Salt Lake's a big part of that. Going to there, just doing a search on National Audubon Society saline lakes program will take you right to the Salt Lake. Matt mentioned Friends of Great Salt Lake. That's another, that's another really good resource that that you can use that has a web page, and they do a lot of advocacy for environmental concerns around the Great Salt Lake. As far as reaching us, neither of us really have a web page. Um, I've got a Facebook page. It's full of kayak pictures and dog pictures and insect pictures, and anybody that's interested is willing to come out and take a look. All right. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate those resources, and I'll make sure that I include those in the show notes so people can follow up and learn more about uh, the Great Salt Lake and what they might be able to do and then how they can take that information and apply that to their own home waters as well. So one final question that I've got for you, and it's a question that we ask of all of our guests on the show, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? You know, one real interesting trip was just concluded very recently. Uh, The individuals were Paul Thompson and Sarah Wooten. And Paul and I actually have never met each other, but we've traded stories of sea kayaking for years now. And, and, And they took a trip that I thought was unique and interesting. They they kayaked around Scotland. In fact, they've got a webpage, Kayak Around Scotland, that they've used. And they paddled 2,356 kilometers to get around Scotland, and they did it in a fairly relaxed way. They um, took their time getting around Scotland and enjoyed it and enjoyed the people and enjoyed the people in the communities. And um, they did it for, for causes. They... Um, are very involved with uh, mental health programs, with concerns about the fisheries in the ocean, and, and also cancer. So they, they did it as a fundraiser for those three items. And I thought that was exciting that, you know, a couple people that are kind of getting into the early retirement ages t- took that kind of time and made that kind of effort to do something good with their kayaking to help their community. Well, I appreciate the, uh, the lead, and I will certainly reach out to Paul and Sarah. I'll collect their contact information from you offline, and uh, we'll see if we can get them on the show and, and give us a little bit of background on their trip as well. So Matt and Scott, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn about your trip and to learn about the Great Salt Lake, and I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD.
While you or I may not live near the Great Salt Lake, the opportunity we can all take away from this episode is that we can each make a difference in our home waters. If you've never heard the term citizen science, it's an opportunity where you can contribute to the scientific community without being a scientist yourself. As kayakers, we often get to places that research vessels can't, and the information we can collect on their behalf really can make a difference. So I encourage you to Google citizen science in your area and see how you can make a difference as well. Our next episode is going to take us to my home waters of the Great Lakes, and we'll be talking with Mike Stout about his journey as a paddler leading up to his unprecedented five crossings of Lake Michigan. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.